the 39A podcast. My name is Baljeet Kaur and I worked with 39A as a senior mitigation investigator. Today, I am in conversation with Dr. Penelope Tong, who is a fieldwork supervisor at Tata Institute of Social Sciences, Mumbai. She has also been a senior social worker with Prayas for over 17 years where she worked with prisoners as well as victims of violent crimes and their family members. Dr. Tong's doctoral study interrogates cases of conflict-based murder with special focus on redressal mechanisms and their implications for the marginalized. In this podcast, we are going to discuss needs of the families of murder victims, drawing insights from her doctoral study conducted in the city of Mumbai. Welcome, Dr. Tong, and thank you for agreeing to be our guest on this podcast. Thank you, Baljeet. I'm happy to be here. Firstly, before we go deeper into your research, I would like to ask a more general question on survivors and victims of murder. My question is, with increased awareness and media campaigns calling for justice for the victims, punishment to the offenders, is our society not talking enough about the needs of victims and survivors? Okay, so presently there are a lot of demands for more stringent punishment and justice, which are perceived as synonymous. So while this is what victims may also want in order for them to know that the offender has been held accountable, there isn't enough being spoken about the psychological, economic, and social implications of losing someone to murder. So you're saying that there is a lot more to the needs of victims and survivors than what gets discussed in the media. Definitely. Okay, now moving on to your research, um, can you take us through your doctoral research and how did you come to study this topic? Your research is titled as Conflict-Based Murder, Redressal Mechanisms and Their Implications for the Marginalized. So in the course of almost two decades of uh, work in uh, prison with undertrial prisoners, I realized that many murder cases were the outcome of minor conflicts that had escalated into homicidal violence. They were also the outcome of longer standing conflicts that did not find redress outside of the court and also due to prolonged abuse as in the case of many women who are accused of the murders of their husbands. When I was based at a police station, I saw that a majority of people who came to the police station for help were people who were socially and economically marginalized, who came with everyday matters. These matters were not criminal and could not be categorized as crime, but they were matters that required the attention of the police because of the threat of violence. And finally, there was the case of a young woman who had been murdered following 11 non-cognizable complaints to the police. All these experiences raised questions for me about uh, the outcome of interpersonal conflict when it became threatening and the spaces that were available for redressing, as well as about the preventability of murder. Um, when I did my research, I interviewed 
police investigation officers. I interviewed the accused and convicted persons and their families and families of murder victims. It's very interesting that you were able to engage with police as well as different parties involved in the violence to bring in various perspectives. But what would you consider important findings of your research? So it was interesting for me to find that in a majority of cases of murder, the parties to the murder were known to each other. So from my research, almost 70% of the cases could be uh, established as those who knew each other. This can also be seen in the Crime in India reports. Another finding that I thought was very important uh, was the fact that each of the cases that I studied in depth had a previously existing conflict. I also saw that persons who were socially and economically marginalized seemed more susceptible to conflict-based violence because of their life circumstances. So they faced struggles over space, over water, paucity of resources, absence of alternatives or options, um, you know, difficult and demanding work conditions. It was also visible that a majority of cases uh, where there was conflict that was threatening stayed within their personal and informal realms you know, as they tried to address the conflict. And this was because of either the psychosocial nature of the conflict or the fear of being stigmatized or an absence of available structures that could address the conflict. Very interestingly, I found that in 30% of the cases that had culminated in murder, the parties had approached the police prior to the homicidal violence. And finally, I found that police was limited in their ability to respond because they are not empowered to take legal action unless there is a crime. In addition to this, I also found that there was no uniform system that the police had where they could assess risk, track earlier complaints, or even refer parties for the kind of assistance they might have needed. These findings are very enlightening, especially because the media narrative, we get an impression that the offender is always some stranger. And we often look at the incident as a one-off event in the life of the victim. I would request you to please elaborate on the situation with regard to this group as a category, the victims and survivors, um, the families of the murder victims. So anybody who has gone through the experience of losing a loved one to murder has gone through a very traumatic experience. So there is the suddenness of the loss, there is the anger, and then there is the hope and expectation of judicial justice. However, what I did see was that victims of murder or survivors of murder victims uh, had three very clear, distinct phases that they seemed to go through. So the first phase was immediately after the death. So while they were just beginning to realize that murder had occurred, they were also required to take action and get processed 
as a victim of a crime. So they were required to register a complaint, give statements, be part of the investigation, uh, uh, face media attention. You know, so all this was part of the first stage. I felt the second phase was post the investigation. It was a time when somebody was just starting to process the whole experience of being a survivor of a murder victim and also to adjust to a new reality in their lives. But this phase coincided with the pre-trial and maybe even the trial phase, the process. And uh, they needed to continue to engage with the criminal justice system, with the police, attend court, and uh, often come face to face with the accused person in court. The third phase was after the trial and the judgment. So if there was a conviction, many parties would feel vindicated. If there was an acquittal, there would be disappointment. But this was not the end. As I saw parties who continued to struggle to cope even after a conviction, there were parties who, of course, needed to continue to work with the criminal justice system if there was an acquittal. There were parties who were able to continue with their lives irrespective of the eventual judgment. And there were parties to whom the judgment did not make a difference because they were so impacted by the whole uh, experience of murder. I understand from your response that survivors go through a very complex journey as they navigate through the legal system, while on the side also coping with their personal circumstances. If I take this discussion forward, would you be able to pinpoint some of the key difficulties or issues that come forth in the experiences of the families of murder victims? So there were several issues, a few that I would like to highlight. One is, of course, the emotional distress. So there is sorrow, there's grief, there's anger, there's vengefulness, there's uh, hopelessness, helplessness, in varying degrees. But I found that mothers of uh, deceased murder victims were most impacted, irrespective of whether the child was a minor or a major. I also found that the age of the victim the circumstances of the murder and the role that the person played in the family prior to the murder affected, you know, how the family experienced uh, the post-murder uh, period. I also found that there were times that somebody who might be seen as a perpetrator of harassment or, you know, violence prior to the murder might end up being a victim. And these things were what affected how the family was treated. So all these collectively contributed to the emotional distress. Another area was a lack of information that victims of crime are confronted with. So I came across families who um, did not know what the charges were in the case. Um, some of them did not know uh, what stage the investigation had reached. Some did not know what were their rights in terms of what was the kind of information or documents that they could access. 
in one case the family did not know uh, that the accused had been acquitted and that's why he was out they thought he was out on bail and yet in another case the family did not even know that the case was over legal guidance and advice is also an area that needs to be attended to because this is also something that families are not given information about in in many cases there are children who are witnesses to the murder or they are uh, you know in the room you know or part of the family now the experiences of these children somehow don't get addressed nobody you know attends to the experiences of these children um a post murder especially if there's a conflict prior to the murder families who are living in close proximity still need to continue to live with each other there's a lot of anger there's a lot of hostility animosity and these are things that they need to face on their own uh in many cases i saw that families were unsure as to whether they should trust the police as an investigation agency and were fearful about corruption so i saw that the role that police plays as an investigation authority sometimes came in conflict with the needs of uh, victims of crime there was the burden of responsibility that witnesses sometimes experienced when being in the role of witness so in one case the mother of a woman who was murdered had to give witness she was an eyewitness but she felt a tremendous burden that in case she did not give her statement as she should there was a chance that a conviction might not happen so these were some of the issues families of course coped better when there was a shared sense of grief or where they felt that the criminal justice system somehow recognized their pain and their circumstances there is a range of issues that these families deal with what are the state responses for survivors and victims of crime in general um what are the existing mechanisms that the state has to fulfill the needs of families of murder victims yeah so over the past 50 years one has seen an increasing attention towards victims of crime and more so in the past 30 years however so far you know responses are largely monetary in nature and take the form of compensation so we have section 357 of the criminal procedure code which allows the court to use the fine that is recovered at the time of sentence to you uh, to support the victim um later amendments required each of the states to formulate a victim compensation scheme and uh, then the funds allocated to this compensation scheme could be used in addition to uh, whatever fine was reco- required so basically the court is in a position to direct or recommend compensation at the time of the sentencing if the case has uh, you know gone through acquittal or if the uh, offender has not been apprehended in those cases the victims or the families can apply to the district legal legal services authority for compensation this leads of course to an inquiry 
and then a final decision. So there are stipulated amounts that can be used as compensation. My concern and what I have seen is that there is no response that gets activated by virtue of the murder. Uh, and so in cases of uh, families or persons who do not have information or do not have the supports to apply for compensation and follow up on the procedure, I think they might just not, uh, you know, go in for compensation and might struggle with whatever they are going through. While you were telling us about the state response, I was recalling your previous answer. And I feel very disappointed that our state's response to the needs of victims is so, so limited. It is only looking at the legal process of trial and uh, say monetary compensation. And you have already told us how even on those two fronts, victims and survivors face so many difficulties. So if you were to design certain mechanisms as part of our justice system, what do you think can be inculcated to provide for a holistic support for victims of crime and families of murder victims? If I had to focus on murder victims, but of course it uh, might be a more general response to victims of violence, her murder is something that cannot be addressed only through judicial justice. This is because of the complexities inherent, uh, you know, in the fact of uh, death by violence. It's also due to the immediate and the longer term aftermath of murder, as well as the intricacies in individual cases. So the criminal justice system would have to approach uh, a response to crime victims from a multidimensional perspective. Okay, so there are lots of things that require to be factored in. Um, also, presently, we do not have any victim support professionals. And so a lot of the responsibility rests on the police, due to which the psychosocial aspects of, um, you know, victims and their situations tend not to get addressed. From my research, I would say, that there is requirement for psychological support because of the nature of the uh, you know experience of losing someone to violence i would say there's also need for legal support because victims also need to understand the nature of our criminal justice system the procedure you know the requirements what is the kind of role they would require to play and finally i think there's support for adjustment and transition from the pre-murder uh, reality to the post-murder reality. Hmm. Um, on the whole, I would also feel that there is need for a preventive effort to get institutionalized, especially in the case of conflict-based murder. So from what I have seen, I think a social worker at a police station might be a step in this direction. Because in my own experience of exploring, you know, scope for work with victims of crime, I have felt that victims of violence definitely require a response. Dr. Tom, your study also talks about certain redressal mechanisms which exist in the form of committees or civil society organizations, uh, particularly in the city of Mumbai where you did your research. So how do you connect 
the functioning of these organizations to the kinds of responses you just enlisted are these committees organizations already working in this holistic manner so while i was interviewing police officers there were references made to two committees one was a police community affiliation that was focused on communal harmony in mumbai there was another police community uh, affiliation that was focused on uh, violence against women but these are bodies that uh, people participate in voluntarily and uh, you know the professional expertise you know might be lacking because they are people from society who are willing to give their time i also saw uh, police counseling units as well as civil society organizations that were involved in mediation but once again the focus was violence against women familial matters and so they focused on a certain group so all conflicts or you know a range of conflicts or range of groups did not get covered so for persons who are uh, economically uh, advantaged um, approaching a lawyer approaching a counselor to address conflicts that might need to get taken beyond the family that is a possibility but for people who are socially and economically disadvantaged there is no body that is available so the police presently is the only body that you know will address a range of conflicts and across all groups but in order to take a matter to the police once again there needs to be violence there needs to be threat of violence or there needs to be some law and order matter so it's not that all cases you know that are uh, you know likely to escalate can go to the police thank you so much dr tong for giving us your time in this podcast thank you so much for allowing me to speak about my research mm-hmm.